Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. For the director of music of the Sons of Korah, a psalm. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die, the foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers, who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Um, Let me say, uh, as I begin, uh, that it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege for me to be uh, with all these guys uh, this week on House Party. It's been uh, fantastic fun and really good for my own faith in Jesus as well. Uh, and it's great to be with, here, with you guys here tonight to be able to uh, share something of what we've learned. We're going to be looking at Psalm 49, which Lucy has just read. Please do keep it open in front of you and we'll be back there in a couple of minutes. But before we come to Psalm 49, let's just bow our heads and pray. Here are some words from Psalm 43 that we've pray, play, prayed a few times this week on House Party. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your word. We thank you for the way it guides us to the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that we would receive your word as truth this evening and be guided by it as we go into your world to live for your glory. Amen. Right, before we return to Psalm 49, I want to tell you a story. It's not one I made up myself, uh, though I have embellished it slightly and added some details. In fact, I reckon uh, many of you will have heard it before in some form or other. But it's a story that I think points us in the right direction for our subject matter this evening. So, uh, there's this farmer. But we're not talking farmer as in a few sheep on a field behind a picture postcard cottage in the Yorkshire Dales. No, think big. Think industrial scale. This guy owns field after field after field and tractor after tractor after tractor to plough them with. His farm is fitted with all the latest technology for irrigation and protection from extreme frosts and insects. No need for any scarecrows here. And every day, huge convoys of massive trucks pile in and out of the farm headquarters, 
collecting vast amounts of produce to take to the supermarkets. The whole thing is like a a giant, well-oiled machine full of giant, well-oiled machines. And at the centre of it, literally master of all he surveys, lord of this agricultural empire, is this man, this farmer. He's a rich man, he's a successful man, and he's an ambitious man. But he's got a problem. His fields are producing crops faster than the trucks can take it to market. So he plays around with some maps and some figures, and he knows what to do. He consults an architect and the local planning authorities, and they agree that his plan is a good one. He's going to tear down his existing barns, and he's going to build even bigger ones so that he can store all his crops and the machines he needs to harvest them. It's a good plan. He's quite rightly pleased with himself. And as he climbs into bed the night before construction is due to begin, he says to himself, you've done well here. You're set for life. No more worries. You've got everything sorted. Just sit back, relax, watch the money roll in. Eat, drink, be merry. And with a contented sigh, he closes his eyes. But he never opens them again. Halfway through the night, he's struck by a massive heart attack that kills him before he even has a chance to regain consciousness, let alone enjoy the future that he dreamed for himself. And that's where the story ends. That dark little story is adapted from one that Jesus told. You can read the original in Luke chapter 12. But I think it tees us up perfectly for Psalm 49. In fact, I wonder if Jesus may have had Psalm 49 in mind as he told it. Because both Psalm 49 and that little story are about the same thing. Wealth in the face of death. And just as that little story is designed to shock us, to grab us, so is this psalm. Because like the story, it's dark and bleak and sobering. Dark, bleak, sobering and incredibly relevant to every single one of us. Because all of us have to deal with the questions of wealth and death. Wealth, well, we live in a world, don't we, where you need money to accomplish most things. And so much of life is oriented around money, the getting of it and the spending of it. Not all of us have money, at least not as much as we might like. But the fact of money is unavoidable. And death, well, that's even more unavoidable if such a thing were possible. Death is, of course, the ultimate statistic. Everyone who lives dies. So this psalm is relevant to everyone, whatever your position with respect to Christianity this evening. The psalmist says as much in the introduction. Just look at verses one and two. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. This is not just a psalm for the Israelites in the Old Testament or for Christians today. This is for everyone, everywhere, every when. The psalmist has something important, something urgent, something unmissable to say. Verses three and four give us more detail on what to expect next. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Wisdom and understanding, a proverb, a riddle, a question answered, a conundrum solved, and all done to the music of the harp. But what follows is not, for the most part, easy listening. Gone are the joyful praise psalms that we were looking at in Psalm 47 or Psalm 48. But it's not a cry for help like Psalms 42 to 44 either. Um, We've been looking all week at this collection of psalms, as you've heard, uh, by the sons of Korah. Um, And here they seem to be experimenting with a different genre altogether, really. 
Uh, This is a wisdom psalm, a, a poem that wouldn't seem out of place in a book like Ecclesiastes. And what is the wisdom this psalm has for us? Well, it comes in three parts. And here's the first one. Death defeats wealth. Death defeats wealth. In verse five, the psalmist poses a question. Why should I fear when evil days come? More specifically, I suppose, it's why, why should I worry when those who trust in their wealth, verse six, are threatening me? And we who've been on house party this week might expect the answer to be something like, God is my refuge and strength. Uh, anyone tell me what psalm that's from? 46, well done. Uh, that's from Psalm 46, which some of us looked at on Wednesday. But the answer that comes in Psalm 49 is, at first, very different. In fact, it hardly seems to answer the question at all. Essentially, the answer is this. Everybody, even the wealthy, dies. Don't fear if the wealthy are oppressing you, because they'll die in the end. Death defeats wealth. And the bulk of the psalm is an extended meditation on this theme. A reflection on the fact that when it comes to death, to borrow a line from a sermon Paul Williams preached on this passage, uh, money can't save you and you can't take it with you. To quote verse 12, which gets more or less repeated in verse 20, like a chorus to the song, man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Now, I mean, at one level, this doesn't seem like a particularly profound piece of wisdom, does it? In many ways, it's a statement of the obvious. Money can't save you and you can't take it with you. There are no pockets in a shroud. But there's a difference, I think, between saying that and really getting it. And the psalmist wants us to get it. Because in his world, as in ours, there are people living as if money can save them, as if they can take it with them. People, verse 6, trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. I mean, think about it. How many times do you come across a problem in life where money is effectively the solution? Car breaks down, not a problem if you've got the money to fix it. Boiler fails, same deal, money solves it. You want to look good, uh, clothes, haircuts, cosmetic surgery, all yours if you've got the money. Do you want to feel good? Holidays, experiences, gym memberships, food and fine dining, all yours if you've got the money. Do you need a shortcut to popularity? Do you want to attract a potential partner? Or flash the cash, money talks. How many of us would feel just a little bit happier, a little bit more at ease if we had a little bit more in the bank? By and large, I think it'd be true to say in our society that in gold we trust. Money can get us out of most holes in life, can't it? Except one. The one six foot deep by six foot long by two foot wide into which they place your coffin. Look at verse seven. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. No matter how much money you have, you can't buy immortality. You know, I suppose you kind of could take issue with the Beatles and argue that money can buy you love, but it certainly can't cheat death. The price is just too high. No one can pay for their own life or for someone else's. Not the Queen, not the Sultan of Brunei, not Bill Gates. No amount of personal wealth can purchase a share in eternal life. There is a reason that when you call 999, you aren't connected to an investment banker. When death comes calling, you can't just pay him off. Money can't save you. And you can't take it with you. Verse 10, wise men die, the foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. As Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament, We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. 
1 Timothy 6 verse 7. You can build yourself a mansion. You can even have a country named after you, verse 11. But ultimately, your grave is your home forever. Uh, America supposedly takes its name from the Italian explorer Amerigo Vespucci, but for the last 500 years, uh, he's been dead in a grave in Florence. In Florence, in fact, there's another grave with a skeleton carved on top with the inscription, once I was as you are, one day you will be as I am. Uh, recently, my wife's Northern Irish, and recently we were over in Northern Ireland, and we went to visit uh, the Ulster Museum in Belfast, and there we saw the corpse of an ancient Egyptian woman called Takabuti, who lived uh, and died over two and a half thousand years ago, and mummification has preserved her remains for us to see, uh, but she is still chillingly, irreversibly dead, in spite of the wealth and prestige she enjoyed during her lifetime. And I could look at her and know that the same fate, death, awaits me. It's sobering stuff, isn't it? In the face of death, the rich are no different from the poor. The wise are no different from the foolish. People, verse 12, are no different from animals. The rich banker, the notable philosopher, they rot just as quickly as the dead cow. Death is the great leveller, the shadow that hangs over every life, putting even the brightest of us in the gloom. It defeats wealth and prestige and honour and intellect and popularity and influence. And yet death is often also the great unmentionable We do so much to insulate ourselves from it so as not to have to think about it or deal with it. But the psalmist and God would have us deal with it, would have us confront it, would have us look death in the face because wisdom means living life in in the face of death. Our finest thinkers and writers and artists have always recognised this and some of our finest art deals with precisely this issue. From Shakespeare to Sufjan Stevens, our poets and songwriters have reminded us that life is but a walking shadow and we're all going to die. And um, for the ultimate secular attempt to look death in the face and reckon with its reality, uh, I think we can look no further than a a poem by Philip Larkin called Obard. Um, The Psalms being poetry and me being somewhat of a fan of poetry, we've had quite a lot of poetry on House Party this year, haven't we? Um, So uh, to give you a bit of a flavour of that as well, uh, here's a little bit more. This is one of my favourite poems. Um, In fact, I think I said on House Party that it's my fourth favourite of all time. Um, And that's because Philip Larkin, while not a Christian, has actually, I think, done all of us a great service by forcing us to confront the terror and the horror of death. This is what he writes. I work all day and get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time, the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there. Unresting death. A whole day nearer now, making all thought impossible, but how and where and when I shall myself die. Arid interrogation. Yet the dread of dying and of being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon. Nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid, no trick dispels. Religion used to try, that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. 
and specious stuff that says, no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell, nothing to think with, nothing to love or link with, the anaesthetic from which none come round. And so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small unfocused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will. And realisation of it rages out in furnace fear when we are caught without people or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different wind at than withstood. Slowly light strengthens and the room takes shape. It stands plain as a wardrobe. What we always know, have always known, know that we can't escape, yet can't accept. One side will have to go. Meanwhile, telephones crouch, getting ready to ring in locked up offices, and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay, with no sun. Work has to be done. Postmen, like doctors, go from house to house. You are dying. So am I. And there is nothing that we or anyone else can do about it. No amount of distraction or denial can change the fact. No amount of material possessions or thrilling experiences or deep and satisfying relationships. And I know you don't need poetry to tell you that. Some of you, especially those who for various reasons may have felt the closeness of death this week, who've encountered death in your work, those who've been remembering lost loved ones, uh, immediately before house party, I was on holiday with my family in France, and annoyingly, on the way home, our car was uh, scuffed by an HGV on the M25. Uh, but whilst we were in France, we were very nearly in a far worse car accident. We were driving through the French countryside on a single, single carriageway road, probably doing about 50 miles an hour, um, and as we rounded a slight bend, we were suddenly faced with a white van barreling towards us on our side of the road, attempting uh, an overtaking manoeuvre that would be generously described as optimistic. And, um, and I thank God for the processing power of the human brain because somehow, in what must have been less than a second, I managed to register the existence of the van on our side of the road and the absence of any substantial solid objects off to the side of the road and tell my hands to turn the steering wheel to the right just enough to flick our car onto the verge and then to course correct back onto the tarmac so we didn't up, end up in a ditch. And we cheated death, but only for the time being. Some of us have had weeks where we've looked death in the face. Most of us haven't, but one day we will. And like the farmer in our story, we don't know when that day will come. The wages of sin is death. We all sin, and so we all die. Death is scary, and no amount of wealth is any use. Death defeats wealth, but there is hope in this psalm. And what a hope it is. It's only a couple of verses actually, but it makes all the difference because the second, the crucial bit of wisdom we learn here is that God defeats death. Uh, follow along as I read from verse 13. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. 
verses 13 and 14 uh, continue a now familiar theme with some striking imagery. Like sheep headed for the slaughter, those who trust in riches are headed for the grave to a place of darkness and destruction. Death, chillingly, will feed on them. But verse 15 provides a wonderful ray of light, doesn't it? But God will redeem my life from from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. See, both those who trust in riches and those who trust in God will experience death. But those who trust in God will go to an utterly different final destination. They will go to God himself. He will receive them. He is waiting for them on the other side. That verse, verse 15, picks up the reference in verse 7 to paying a ransom for immortality. Something which, as we've seen, no man could ever do. Because no man could ever have the resources to meet the price. But God can. Introduce God into the equation and you open up a whole new set of possibilities. The psalmist knows God and therefore he can say with confidence, but God will redeem my life from the grave. But how do we know this isn't just wishful thinking? To quote Philip Larkin, yet another religion created to pretend we never die. Well, for all the psalmist's confidence, today we are in a far more privileged position. He knew that God would ransom his soul. We know how God ransoms souls. We know the price that he paid to do so. We know how God defeats death. In Mark 10 verse 45, Jesus, speaking about himself, says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The life of Jesus, the perfect, law-keeping, obedient life of the Son of God, was enough. And when he died on the cross, he cried out the word tetelestai in Greek, which we normally translate, it is finished, but which could also be translated, it is paid. Um, It was great uh, to have Andy Toward giving us our breakfast time thought for the day on house party each day. Uh, And one of his little thoughts was about the fact that you are basically worth what someone is willing to pay for you. And Jesus paid for you with his life. As Peter writes in his first letter, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's 1 Peter 1, 18-19. And how do we know the payment was sufficient? How do we know the ransom worked? Well, through the real historical fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. God did not abandon him to the grave, so he will not abandon us. We who are joined to Jesus by faith, we who have put our trust, not in our riches, but in his sacrifice, our good shepherd, our resurrection and our life. We who believe in him, though we die, shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. God gave his son to ransom our souls from the grave. That has to transform our attitude towards death, doesn't it? And that's not to say that Christians sort of suddenly and automatically become utterly fearless in the face of death. God may grant us that kind of fearlessness. I'm not sure it's every Christian's experience. But we can know, and the more we meditate on these truths, the deeper we'll know what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? We have been set free from the fear of death. For the Christian, redeemed from the grave by our Lord and Saviour, death is just something unpleasant that we have to pass through on the way to somewhere infinitely better. Death is just gossip on the way home to Sheffield. (laughs) It's not the end. 
It's not even the beginning of the end. For the Christian, death is just the end of the beginning. This must transform how we face our own death, mustn't it? And how we grieve for friends and family members who died trusting in Jesus. What Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, God has written to us. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14 doesn't mean we have to be griefless in the face of death any more than we have to be fearless in the face of it but our own grief just like our fear is shot through with hope real resurrection hope hope that is worth holding on to tightly and sharing widely god defeats death and this wonderful news transforms our attitude to death but the wisdom of psalm 49 dictates that it must also transform our attitude to wealth mustn't it So our third piece of wisdom is this, don't let wealth defeat God. As we've seen, we've been set free from lifelong slavery to the fear of death, but we are also called to live free from the love of wealth. Psalm 49 offers us, doesn't it, reassurance in the face of one of our biggest fears, death. But it also offers us a really stern challenge to one of our biggest loves, our biggest idols, wealth. We know death defeats wealth, that's just common sense. And we know God defeats death, don't we, many of us? We know those resurrection realities to be true. And yet somehow there can be times in our life when it seems like wealth is in danger of defeating God, or at least sort of edging him out. As if we're in in some kind of spiritual scissors, paper, stone scenario where death defeats wealth, God defeats death, and wealth defeats God. We are living in a land, to quote the hymn, of spirits oppressed by pleasure, wealth, and care. Most of us probably have just enough to kid ourselves that we don't need God. And we're swimming, aren't we, in a culture that urges the pursuit of money. And we try to justify it by saying we just want to provide for our children. We just want enough to get by. And we're absolutely right. There's nothing in the Bible that says that we shouldn't have money or that it's wrong to be rich, let alone comfortable. But I don't know about you, but we so easily use those things to draw a veil over hearts that are tainted by a greed that endangers our very faith in God. Jesus was right. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. Despite what you may think, and you may think you're the exception to the rule, you cannot serve two masters. And so tonight, choose whom you will serve. And be wise. Choose to serve the one who can redeem, who has redeemed your life from the grave. If you come away from this evening with a new confidence in the face of death, but with a heart fundamentally unchanged in the area of wealth, you've basically missed the point of Psalm 49. It is a powerful and a direct call not to trust in wealth, but to trust in God. Not to boast in riches, but to boast in God. Not to be afraid or anxious or envious when others around you are getting rich, but to seek first the kingdom of God. Let me tell you how Jesus ends the story of the rich farmer in Luke 12. It's another but God moment, except this one's a lot more sobering than the one in Psalm 49 verse 15. Jesus says this, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. You are dying. 
so am I. With every moment that goes by, we get yet closer to the grave. And all the money that we save is useless in the face of death. We cannot bank or buy back breath. Your heart is beating, counting down until the day you're underground or up in smoke and scattered ash, regardless of your petty cash. Dust we are, to dust return, whatever salary we earn. Loaded lowly, fools or sages, sinners all, and deaths are wages. We can't deny, we know it's true. No wealth or wisdom we accrue can keep us from that six-foot hole, can pay the price to save our souls. You are dying. So did Christ. He gave himself. He sacrificed his perfect life upon the cross. Our prophet suffered untold loss. Our great high priest who bled and died. Our king who laid his crown aside. He, though rich beyond all measure, counting you and I a treasure worth his death and degradation, paid the price for our salvation. He, though rich in heaven's glory, gave it up to change our story. He, the Lord, the great I am, became our pure and spotless lamb. The price required that we might be from death through death to life set free. And then he rose The check has cleared. Death's no longer to be feared. Christ has bought us endless days and we will spend them lost in praise. You are dying. Die to self. You cannot hope to hoard your wealth. Lay them down, your gifts, your gold, your days, your years, the young, the old. Sacrifice. Be always giving. Make a life, not just a living. Image Christ who out of love gave up his throne in heaven above and know that as you live for him, his light within you will not dim. Your wealth may wax, your wealth may wane. You might lose all your worldly gain, but you'll receive a rich reward, a prize by Christ himself secured. You are dying, so did he, to purchase our eternity. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and give you immense praise this evening um, that you were willing to send your own son to pay the price for our sins, uh, that we might be set free from the fear of death. Uh, We thank you for that great sacrifice which has paid the cost. And we are sorry that too often we put our trust in wealth, we put our trust in wealth for life, and some of us maybe even put our trust in wealth for death. And we have seen this evening uh, what an empty, what a hopeless way of life that is. And we pray, therefore, that you will help us to firmly trust you, to trust in the reality of your resurrection, and that you would work in us by your spirit living within us to make us more like the Lord Jesus who gave up glory in order to serve us. May we uh, live in the same way uh, to serve him and to serve one another until he returns or calls us home. Amen.